0: Can everybody hear me? Yes, I did the mic right. I'm proud of myself. Um, I just want to start by expressing my gratitude to all of you. Really, um, I'm really thankful to be here this summer in so many ways. And if I started to talk about those ways, it would take far too long, and you'd miss supper, and that would be a sin. But um, I'm really it. Um, this summer has formed me. It has molded me. has made me. Better in many ways. Um, I've grown a lot from a lot of people, and I really appreciate Philip. He's been an instant mentor to me um, this summer from the get go. And Craig Evans has taken Sam and I in a lot. We've had just random conversations um, in ver- various times throughout the summer, and I've I've been blessed by each conversation and his wisdom. Super thankful for him. Um, I'm thankful for all of you, but really, your kids. This youth group. I'm thankful for you because you brought them to me. They mean a lot to me, and I love them a lot. I don't want to talk about that too long. Um, so now that my Oscar acceptance speech is over, let's uh, <laughs> dive into what we're going to talk about. Um, Hebrews four and verse four and verse fifteen says says this. It says, "For we do not have a high priest." Who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Do you believe that? Honestly? Do you think that's true? Do you think that Jesus Christ felt as weak as we do? Do you think he really understands what I'm going through? Do you think he was really tempted? you think the devil had a chance for the longest time I'm going to be honest I didn't believe that that verse to me I was like Jesus Christ is a superhero he's untouchable he's impenetrable nothing can beat him he's undefeated and most of those things are have been are true but man did he go through a lot I think the very fact that Satan chose to tempt him shows that he was human. And Jesus' says humanity is something that I can't even begin to understand. It's something that I can't even begin to grasp, feel the pain of, and understand the magnitude of, um, and per- perhaps to, to understand a little bit about Jesus being tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, let's look at when he was tempted. We're given explicit passages in three of the Gospels that say he was tempted by the devil. In Luke and Mark, it says that he was tempted for 40 days, not just the three specific ones that were given. Um, but I want to go even beyond that. I want to focus on Matthew chapter 4, if you want to turn there, um, and the temptations of Jesus Christ. Because I want, I want to focus in on this. I think that the temptations that we are given what has been revealed to us about Jesus Christ's temptations is I think it shows his humanity and I think it shows his perfect love for us. And he's not a superhero. Um, I think the definition of a superhero is, is it's all con- misconstrued. Is Maybe it's defined by Marvel and maybe it's defined by Greek mythology, but maybe Jesus Christ is a superhero, but not by those definitions. Jesus Christ is a superhero because superheroes are perfect. And our Savior's perfect. But our perfect Savior was tempted in Matthew chapter 4. And I think Satan actually begins by attacking this superhero mentality, if you will, superhero. I think he starts, and I think the first two temptations listed in Matthew chapter 4, the ones where he asked him, hey, turn the stones to bread. Hey, jump from the pinnacle of the temple, Jesus. But I think the weight in that temptation is in the first phrase. If you are the Son of God. I think that's where a lot of the temptation lies in those first two. Do you think in that moment, 40 days fasting in the wilderness, do you think he felt like the Son of God? Do you think he felt hungry, weak, alone? He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for that very purpose, to be tempted. 40 days later, I can't go four hours without eating. Forty days later, what did, he, what did he feel like? We can't know for sure. It hasn't been revealed to us. But I think that that temptation is if you are the son of God. Forty days, yeah, 40 days removed from food, 40 days removed from people close to him, from John the Baptist, from his baptism. But most importantly to me, it's 40 days removed from when the voice from heaven spoke and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I think that's the key. Forty days, he hasn't necessarily heard that. And so, Satan says, if you're the Son of God, you know you are. You know you are. But if you're the Son of God, do these things. And I'm I'm not here to tackle the question of, would it have been a sin if he had jumped off the pinnacle of the temple and been saved? I'm not going to tackle that question. I I think this, though. I think that um, he knew he was the son. And I don't know his thoughts in that moment, but I know a couple. I want to read from Hebrews chapter 5, and I want to read from John chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 5, it says this. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he being God who said to him being Christ, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I think it's so important that that verse says that he was heard because of his fear, even though he was a son. So Satan says, if you're the son of God, Jesus says, I know I'm the son. I know I'm the son, but I'm not going to do that because I'm an obedient son. I'm an obedient superhero. And so he gives scripture and he obeys God. I think, it, I think he came in that moment, I think he came to show the power of God. I think Jesus Christ came to this earth to show the power of God. But I think Jesus Christ also came to this earth, and here's where the humanity hits, to show the perfect obedience of God. I think that's what you see in the first two temptations. But I, I want to focus on the third one, because this is the one that I cannot wrap my mind around. So I want to talk to you guys about it. In verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4, it says, He came, or again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, again, I used to look over these temptations like, nothing can touch Jesus. And this one, most of all, I was like, okay, here's my brain. Dangerous thinking. Satan equals enemy. Enemy tells me to worship him. Answer, no. Done. That's what I thought about this. I was like, it's logical. It makes sense. Satan is the prince of the world, the king of darkness, the one who lies, God is good. Satan tells me to worship him. When I'm told to worship God, I don't do it. Why is this not a no-brainer? I think that's dangerous thinking for probably about three reasons, maybe more. First, please do not belittle the power of Satan. Please do not belittle his power. And please don't think with that that you can take him one-on-one. Me, a worm, flesh, cannot beat the devil one-on-one. I'm nothing of myself. That's the verse I failed to read from John 5. Um, it says in John 5, 5 and chapter 5 and verse 19, that Jesus says the Son can do nothing of himself. And if he says that, then who am I to say that I can beat best the devil one-on-one? So don't belittle the power of Satan, but also... Don't exalt yourself above measure. And I guess that kind of goes with thinking you can beat the devil one-on-one. Don't, ex- don't think that you, when you're placed in the situation Jesus Christ was placed in here, that you've got it figured out before you're even in it. That's dangerous thinking. But third, and perhaps most of all, please don't underestimate and undervalue the power of Christ's endurance and his ability to overcome this temptation. So, with that, trying to dismiss this dangerous thinking, I tried to look at this from a different angle, like, what made this hard? Why why is it a difficult temptation? And I think that, I I thought about it this way, if he bowed, if he bowed before Satan, and this is, he's not asking, I talked to Craig about this, the language is not asking for him to serve and believe in the devil as as the one forever. It's a physical act of worship is what the devil's asking. One-time thing. Physical act of worship. That's all. And he becomes king over all the people he came to save. Not only that, but he becomes the king they wanted. He becomes the king they expected. Earthly king. Establishing a kingdom, even in Acts, when he's about to ascend, spoiler alert, his apostles still think that he's going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. This is what everybody expects, even the people who followed him closely when he enters into his ministry. Instead of feeling compassion for the multitudes as sheep without a shepherd, he could have been the shepherd that the sheep would willingly follow. Instead of feeling like the hen whose chicks refuse to be gathered into her arms, into her nest. He could have been the hen that the chicks willingly nestled under. Instead of becoming the king he wanted, he chose to be the savior we needed. John chapter 1 and verse 10 to 11 doesn't say this. It doesn't say he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world knew him. He came to his own and his own received him. That's not what it says. But that's what it could have been in this moment. That's what it could have been. If he bows, then his own receive him. He's king. He's king over everyone. But he chose instead to be the savior he needed. So he says, away with you, Satan. Satan leaves the end. I'm done. No, no. That's another, that's another dangerous thinking that I fell under. Is I thought, okay, temptation's done here, but Luke chapter 4 and verse 13 makes it very clear. It says that Satan departed until an opportune time. Um, Jesus Christ, there, there's, in First John it talks about Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, came to destroy the works of the evil one. And I think that it doesn't happen all right here. He was not just tempted these three times that were given. He was tempted again after that. When did this this come back up in Christ's human brain? When did he remember, ah, I didn't bow? When did, he, when did that resurface? When were those opportune moments where the devil came again, where Satan came again and whispered in Christ's ear, if you bow one time, one time, if you bow, then you can be king over everyone. They'll accept you. They'll laud you. They'll love you. They'll know who you are. An earthly king, earthly crown. I thought of a few. Perhaps it's in John 6. After he feeds the 5,000, they, they try to seize him to make him king. But he has to, he has to step away from them and go into an alone place you think perhaps he hears in that moment, I could be your king, Satan's saying, you could be the king, and maybe he's thinking, what's going to happen next time a crowd seizes me, but if I bow, they won't. Maybe it's in Matthew 16, a passage where Peter has just confessed Jesus as the Christ. And then Jesus begins to tell them, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to be killed. But I'm going to be, I'm going to be raised. Luke's account tells us that his disciples didn't understand this. So cut Peter some slack here. But Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. And what does Jesus say? You almost feel like Jesus gets impatient. He says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Why? Why does he call Peter Satan when he says, no, Jesus, you don't have to die? Maybe Jesus is thinking, I know I don't have to die. Don't remind me. Of the time where I didn't bow. I know I don't have to die, but I know that I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. Maybe that was a time. Maybe it's in the garden. Or as he's pecking. <laughs> if there's any way. This cup can pass for me anyway. And Satan is yelling at him, there he is. There is a way that this cup can pass. One time. One time. And blood's dripping down his brow. But he says, not my will, not mine. Maybe it's in John. Whenever he's in trial, Pilate brings him out. And he hears people say, away with him. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. What is Satan telling him there? You could be that king, forget Caesar, you'd crush Caesar. No, but he endures, crucify him. What about in Mark chapter 15? Did he think of the golden crown that he could have had on his brow as a king before humanity whenever they twisted a crown of thorns on his head? Whenever it tore his head open. And in verse 19 of that chapter, it says, they say, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. Instead of all humanity bowing before him, they get these soldiers mocking him and giving him a crown of thorns. Did he think about his loyal subjects? Did he think about... Um, Having crowds coming to be faithful to him. But listen to Matthew 27, what the crowd is yelling. If you are the son of God. Does that sound familiar? In verse 40, I think, or 40 or 41. If you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. Sounds an awful lot like Satan. If you are the king of the Jews, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And Satan is screaming, You can come down, you can breathe. And he doesn't. You can stay alive. They will believe you, respect you, honor you. Why did he never bow? One time. And he could be the king we expected in our ignorance, in our misinterpretation of the law and the prophets, in our constant selfishness. Why did he not bow? I don't know the answer. I don't know the mind of Christ. It's too high. But I, I, do, I do know to read this, because I think this is the closest I can get, get to giving you an answer. It's from John chapter 12. This passage is powerful to me. John chapter 12, verses 27 through 32. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Then Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. He did not bow before Satan because he was bowing before God. And praise him for that. Instead of being lifted on a high mountain by Satan... So that he could be our leader. He was lifted up on a cross by us so that he could be our savior. That's still not the end. Don't worry. That's not the end of this. He did not bow. But now I want to read two lengthy passages if you can, if you can bear with those. Philippians chapter 2 Then Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole thing, if y'all can bear with me. I just, can't, I just can't skip any of this. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth." Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. He did not bow then. So now all will bow before him. To try to count the challenges from examining Christ's life is, is it's like trying to count to infinity. It's pretty hopeless. So I've got two. I've got two challenges to throw at you. They're pretty simple. One. Going back to Philippians chapter 2, says that every knee should bow at the name of Jesus. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow before Jesus. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord on either a great day or a terrible day. And it's our job. It's our job. It's a pretty simple job. It's our job to convince everyone on earth to bow before him before that day. That's our job. It's, it's, it doesn't get much simpler than that. I know there's a lot of complexities. People don't, may not like you. People may not be your friend. Sometimes there's a language barrier. There's lots of real difficulties, but come on. This man did not bow before Satan because of us, and I want to share that with whoever I can. That's our first job. The second one comes from, I, I chose Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, tell a story. Um, the story's called The Rich Young Ruler, probably the heading in your Bible. And it's where um, a rich man, hence the name, comes up to Christ and says, good teacher, what may I do to inherit eternal life? And um, Jesus relays to him the commandments and the rich young ruler says, I've kept all these from my youth check. And then he says, what do I still lack? A really noble question, a question we all can and should ask from time to time. What do I lack? Because we lack a lot. And Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. I think that's better than most of us. You lack one thing. That's it. Sell all your stuff and give to the poor. Sell your possessions. And then he leaves sorrowful. It even says that Christ looked on him and loved him. And then he left sorrowful. So my, my second challenge to you, I, th- I think, is, I want you to remember two things about this pa- passage first, is that um, on your own, it's impossible. On your own, it's impossible. Because later, after the rich young ruler leaves, Peter and the apostles are like, after Christ says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Peter and the apostles are like, who can be saved? and a camel go through an eye of a needle. Who can be saved? And Christ says in the, at the end of this passage, with man it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So just separate those two and remember, if you're just going to rely on yourself, it's impossible. And if Satan comes to you and gives you just, hey, bow one time, you're going to bow one million times. Trust me, I know. I've done it. So remember that if you're just going to rely on yourself, it's impossible. Just give it up. But if you want to accomplish anything, then with God, all things are possible. But the second challenge is this, is um, what are you bowing to? What are you bowing before that is keeping you from bowing before Christ? It's a simple question. What, What are you kneeling before? What are you giving into? Because bowing is a a simple thing. It was created a long time ago. I do not have the Wikipedia page on this. But bowing, the simple act of bowing is just to make something or someone else higher than you. Physical act, that's what it is. So when we bow before Christ, we already are acknowledging that he is higher than we are. And so by bowing before God, we're saying, hey, I want you to be even higher. I want you to be even higher. But, When we bow before something else, we're also making that higher. And double whammy, we're making it have more attention than God. So what is it that you're bowing before? Um, And the other challenge I wanna remind you is, hey, at the end of time, all will bow before the King, the Lamb, our Savior, our Messiah. And it's our job just to simply share that with others and get them to bow before. I know that there are, The elders here are fantastic, loving people. I've spent a lot of time with the ministers here, great people. If you would like to talk to them about anything tonight, if you have anything you wanna get off your heart, another be willing to talk about what baptism is, then come as we stand and sing.